Hello, Noswaitha. In this session, uh, this evening, uh, I'm going to be responding to one rather enormous question. There isn't a question that comes up regularly, but it is a question that has cropped up several times over the years. Uh, and it came up quite recently on uh, a course with a student. We were having some private communications via email. And, you know, as often happens, there was a bit of backwards and forwarding. And it was quite clear that the student um, was dissatisfied, if you like, with part of the approach that I take. And, you know, and I really encourage um, people that sit on the courses to question what it is that I'm doing and to try and, uh, you know, get their the head around the approach I take and to sort of put pressure on the ideas. Um, it's useful for me as well sometimes to have people um, sort of really question and really dig down into what I'm trying to do on the courses. Um, and I thought that this video, that this question deserved a, an in-depth answer, uh, but the students wanted to remain anonymous, which is perfectly fine, totally respect that. Uh, but I did say that I would be responding uh, on video uh, this month. The main issue that comes up sometimes when people are trying to, you know, understand and appreciate my way of working on the courses uh, is the, the questioning that happens around interpretation. And the question is usually, you know, what's the point in interpreting uh, myths. Why don't we just stick to the historical facts and describe the historical facts and then let people make their own minds up? And that's a fair enough uh, comment to make. Um, it usually also comes with an implied sort of, you know, only facts are truly scholarly and interpretation is in somehow unscholarly or uh, is not something that we should be doing with these texts if we're trying to describe their history. And I can understand that attitude. Of course, people coming from different disciplines, um, particularly people coming from the sciences, may be a little frustrated with the humanities, with the arts at times, with how freely we sometimes treat um, what should be perhaps, you know, the sacred cows of historical data. But the humanities don't really work in that way, and I don't really feel like what I do is that uh, strange or is that out of the ordinary. Um, and I'm just going to try and answer this question as properly as I can, uh, as in-depth as I can, but I'm going to break my answer down into two parts. First of all, I'm going to look at interpretation, how interpretation is used in the modern field of comparative mythology or folklore studies or the study of ancient stories and ancient narratives because there is a very important place for interpretation in formal academia and then I'm going to talk a little bit more about how I approach these things because my approach isn't strictly academic but I'm not that far off. Um, uh, I would say that I'm actually quite close but I do do other things too. So those, those are the, the two points I'm going to try and cover. Uh, in this in-depth answer on why interpret myths? Well, if we didn't interpret myths, very simply, we wouldn't understand them. 
uh, interpretation is uh, unavoidable when we're approaching especially historical texts which are far removed from us in terms of time uh, and uh, texts which come from communities that have disappeared, so communities that no longer exist. And I'm not just talking about communities as in little villages or towns, but communities of learning and communities of expertise, such as guilds of storytellers or bards, yeah? those types of communities also. Those communities are no longer accessible to us because they all died a very, very, very long time ago. So when we're looking at texts from those communities, we are inevitably drawn into interpretation, what we might call a little bit of guesswork, to try and plug in the gaps in our knowledge so that we can come to sort of, uh, um, you know, hypothesis about what these texts mean. Now, when I was considering how to answer this, I was pulling down books from the shelves and going through old papers and thinking, oh, yeah, I could quote that one, and oh, yeah, we've got that one, and then there's this one. And I was thinking, this is way too much material to present uh, in a Facebook Live on a Tuesday night uh, in front of folks who are usually turning up to watch me rabbit on about myths or folklore, because this can be a little bit academic, but it is very interesting. So I just went to one specific paper, which I think touches on and summarises a, a lot of what, what has gone on uh, in modern scholarship in the 20th century. Uh, and this is uh, a paper by an anthropologist and folklorist by the name of J.L. Fisher. And it's the socio-psychological analysis of folktales. What does that mean? Well, very simply, uh, Fisher himself says that there are three parts to the issue. There's the sociological side, so the study of society, the study of social groups. Then there's the psychological side, which is the study of uh, sort of personal attitudes and personal subjective psychological uh, influences of storytellers uh, and story makers and myth makers and audiences also. So there's two sides to the sort of the study and the thing that's being studied is folktales. Now, Fisher was not the first, but he was certainly one of the, the main anthropologists and folklorists to formulate what we might call the sociological interpretation of folklore and myth. He was interested in seeing how the underlying structures in folktales in his case, but he would also incorporate myths in that, how the underlying structures and shapes in old stories corresponded to what was going on in the social groups and the communities that made those stories, that there was some correspondence between the stories themselves and how people lived. Now, that kind of makes sense, yeah? You would expect that to be the case because people, even though they are telling imaginative and sometimes far out and wacky stories, they're also really telling stories about themselves. So it's not surprising that we find um, uh, evidence about different societies in their stories. 
but specifically that social relations are also expressed in these stories. The way that people relate to each other in terms of marriage or, you know, a very popular one in the anthropological scene was incest or the different taboos about who could be with who and, you know, uh, at what age people could do things. These are all sociological uh, elements or sociological realities that are expressed in quite fantastical stories sometimes, yeah. Um, but also Fisher was very aware of the problems of interpretation. Uh, and he was, you know, trying to pin down what it means to look at the symbols in folktales. Um, and this is just a quote from his paper. Uh, I'm on to the second sentence. In one sense, of course, any tale is symbolic as an instance of language. Basically, any use of language is symbolic um, because language is a symbolic system. But this is a trivial sense and is not what is usually meant by symbolism in tales. So he's essentially saying, but this isn't really what's important about looking at symbols in language and symbols in stories. We know language is symbolic. We're after symbols in stories. Nor is there any special reason to make any great separation of linguistic symbolism in tale texts from linguistic symbolism in other kinds of texts. So he's basically saying that there's no reason why we should consider folktales or myths different to other types of stories if we're just after language as, as a symbolic system, yeah? But this sentence is the important one. Tales differ from many other linguistic texts, however, in that they contain a well-developed super-linguistic level of symbolism. Now then, what is a super-linguistic level of symbolism? In which images of characters, actions, places, etc., initially evoked by language themselves serve as the elements of a new lexicon. He's essentially saying that folktales have a second level of meaning, uh, especially if they have very clearly defined symbols in them. Now, this isn't crazy old Gwail saying this. This is a highly respected scholar um, who, you know, was uh, well-regarded in his community uh, throughout the second half of the 20th century. Um, people like Stith Thompson and whoever, you know, the greats of folklore studies had a high regard for Fisher. So in the study of, of formal uh, anthropology and folklore itself, there is an appreciation that these stories are symbolic and therefore, if they are symbolic, they need to be interpreted. Interpretation is what allows us to apprehend these symbols and to try and understand them and see what they mean. Just to take this a little bit further, uh, Fisher then goes on to talk about E.R. Um, Leach. E.R. Leach was another uh, highly regarded anthropologist uh, of this period, second half of the 20th century. Uh, Leach has stressed that the cognitive function of myth is to present a model of the social structure. What he means there is that myths help people think about the societies that they live in. Their cognitive function, they, they help people think yeah, about their social groups, about their societies. 
Um, although he has also stated that the model is of an ideal social structure, which at times must be ignored in practice. So, for example, you know, if the myth is really strident on the fact that kings shall not lock up their brothers, but in reality the king has to lock up his brother, well, obviously those sorts of political realities often over override or overrule the myths. We can, you know, just think of how hypocritical some priest classes are over the world. But there you go, that's another story. Um, so he's, as Fisher's essentially saying that Leech here also believes that myths describe, in symbolic form essentially, the societies that gave birth to them. But interestingly, uh, in the second part of this quote, a similar view of myth and ritual as a picture of the structure so that is the picture of the structure of society, for edification of the members of the society, that is to teach the members of the society about the correct social structure, if you like, about the correct way to live in society, is expressed by Dumazil. Now, Georges Dumazil was a very interesting uh, French comparative mythologist. You could say he was more influ uh, influential than Joseph Campbell even. Some of you may have heard of Joseph Campbell, author of The Hero with a Thousand Faces, sometimes adored by uh, the academic community, sometimes poo-pooed, sometimes he's in fashion, sometimes he's out of fashion. But someone who's consistently been in fashion in the academic world is, is George Dumazil. George Dumazil was a comparative mythologist. Uh, one of his great contributions to the study of mythology was to realise that um, there was such a thing as a, a trifunctional form, what he called his trifunctional hypothesis, that there was a particular three-part shape to ancient Indo-European myths. And those three parts corresponded to a priest class, a warrior class, and the peasantry, essentially, or people who grew food. And this tri-functional form was something that he found in uh, Indo-European mythologies, uh, Germanic uh, mythologies, Nordic mythologies, and also, I think, in Iranian mythologies also. So he compared all of these different mythologies and he noticed that these three classes of characters arose quite regularly, the priests, the warriors, and the farmers, essentially. And therefore, he interpreted that as meaning that earlier Indo-European society, of which we have no direct evidence whatsoever, must have had this tri-functional structure, these three different classes uh, within that society. So Dumazil essentially saying, we have these myths, and through these myths we can say that a distant uh, culture in the past that these myths uh, uh, grew out of, essentially, that distant culture, that distant society, must have had these three separate roles in that society. They must have had priests and warriors and farmers. Now we can see that same social pattern, that same social structuring in Iron Age Celtic society also. Iron Age Celtic society obviously being descendants of the earlier Indo-Europeans, so it makes sense, yeah? Most Indo-European cultures, 
uh, and most Indo-European mythologies have some version of this trifunctional hypothesis. So again, you can see that Dumézil has interpreted a mythology and through interpreting it uh, has uncovered uh, a social structure that's embedded, if you like, or that's preserved in the archaeology, in the underlying strata of the myth. And that that, that is, uh, it's a hypothesis because he can ever prove it directly because we don't we know very little about the Indo-Europeans. But it's a hypothesis and it's a really powerful hypothesis because there are lots of points of data, lots of comparisons that he can make to make that argument. Yeah? But it's all fundamentally interpretation. He's interpreting, if we want to use scientific lingo, he's interpreting data to come to a conclusion, which is otherwise not necessarily apparent in the data. Yeah, It's the interpretation that allows that to happen. So that's the role interpretation plays in academia. Um, there is no comparative mythology. There is there are no folklorists. There's there's no study of myth. Full stop. Unless we have some even mild form of interpretation, because otherwise we're simply working with disjointed texts um, uh, that seem similar. And we, you know, they, they look like they're the same, but we can't arrive at any conclusions about why they're similar because we can't interpret them, which leads us on to what I do. So I don't necessarily follow as strict a set of guidelines as someone like Georges Dumézil. Um, you know, I'm a musician at heart. I'm uh, a creative type. I like to play with things. I love stories. I love storytelling. I love uh, the poetry and the stories of the Welsh tradition. And I'm really interested in what they mean and what they would have meant in historical contexts. And I've got uh, a fascination with historical beliefs and the beliefs of common people in particular. What did common folk believe about the world that they were in? I'm really interested about that stuff. I get really nerdy about it. Um, and obviously I've got an academic background and I've been to university and I've, you know, read papers and books and studied stuff, you know, thoroughly in an academic sense. That's obviously part of what I do. But also I'm a little bit looser with interpretation because sometimes there just isn't enough data. There aren't enough comparisons. So we have to go on our own intuition about what it could mean. Now, very often, I do rely on comparisons. So for those of you who have sat any of my courses, you'll know that when I'm really after something in particular, I'll bring in other stories where similar events occur or where similar symbols are used. And sometimes I'll try and use stories from different traditions. So I'll compare Welsh stories with Irish stories or with French stories or, you know, Arthurian stories from continental Europe in the medieval period and so on and so on. Or I'll compare stories from different periods. So story, the stories from a thousand years ago, the four branches of the Mabinogi with later folklore. But I'm always trying to base my work on comparisons, because if there's a similarity between different stories, that usually means that there is a greater context that they exist within. Now, either 
that's a very simple context where one storyteller liked the story and borrowed it. Or if we see this type of story repeated time and time again, we can guess that that type of story or that motif was important to people. And not only important because it reflected their social lives. This is where I go a step further sometimes. I would say sometimes that would reflect their beliefs and how they saw the world and how they thought they should position themselves specifically with the supernatural, with the mysterious side of life, with the strange things that go bump in the night. No, I'm joking. With, with you know, the mysterious nature of existence, essentially. What are, are we to make of our lives as conscious beings in this remarkable reality that we live in? Uh, and I would say that many of our uh, prose classics, such as the Four Branches of the Mabinogi, contain very profound insights and philosophies, not just about social life, but also about spiritual life and about, uh, you know, metaphysical ideas about the nature of reality. Now, that is a step further than most modern scholars are willing to go. Most modern scholars will sit quite happily with sociological interpretations. This story reflects this type of social phenomena. The, you know, Juliet Wood in her paper on the fairy bride, uh, for example, says that the liminality experienced by the fairy bride in the story expresses the liminality felt by women uh, of the common folk in Wales several hundred years ago who felt like they had a, a foot in two different family camps and that they weren't quite in uh, in one family or another, that they were somehow liminal, yeah? Which is a fair enough interpretation. But I would take that a step further and say, well, perhaps these stories are also talking about how some women felt like they were human, but that they also belonged in the wild, that they had an animal aspect uh, that is sometimes expressed in the Selkie stories or uh, in, you know, the women who rose out of lakes and stuff like that, that there was a part of them that was wild. That is, I interpret the story as meaning that it corresponds to their personal belief about the world. And I think that there's still a lot of value in that. I think that there is still um, a great deal to be said about our traditions and still a great deal to be uncovered. Um, and that I encourage people to go after that, to look at those more subjective, personal uh, beliefs that are maybe preserved in these stories. Because if one thing is for certain... And this is by no means a, a, a huge criticism of academia or scholarly culture. But because I'm sure many scholars and academics appreciate this also. But in many ways, we always or we tend to find the things that we're looking for. So if we are formally trained in objective, rational 
practice, practices such as linguistics and historical linguistics and philology and grammar and studying text and archaeology and all these very objective, what we might call positivist sort of traditions in academia, then the work that we produce will reflect that culture. It will reflect Um, our interest in sociology, or it will reflect our sense that sociology is more dependable a framework to interpret within than is, say, you know, pagan beliefs, for example. That um, you know, sociology and psychology as formal science-based fields, although some would even dispute that. Um, are far more reliable lenses through which to view these these types of texts and stories. I understand that, but I would say that the stories that we've inherited are actually uh, from a culture which didn't have an appreciation of sociology or psychology. Those fields didn't exist. Um, they weren't uh, a part of their worldview. What was a part of their worldview was stories as uh, vessels of symbolic meaning, and this is something that I cover on the first part of <clears throat> the first chapter uh, of the four branches of the Mabinogi course, where I outline the tradition of symbolic interpretation in Irish and Welsh stories. There are parts of Irish and Welsh stories which are explicitly symbolic. The storyteller and the audience both knew that the symbols in the story needed to be interpreted before the story could be fully understood. That that was an explicitly understood part of storytelling. It wasn't just about pure entertainment on a superficial level. Um, It was also entertainment on an intellectually stimulating level and also on a level of affirming certain beliefs and philosophies and spiritualities. That that was also part of the tradition. So for me, because I think that was an explicit part of what these storytelling lineages were doing, it's important for us to approach the stories in that way too. Sociological interpretations and psychological interpretations are powerful and useful, but there's also understanding the tradition within its own terms also, which I believe to be just as valid and just as important.